to her husband Abram as his wife. The crisis of chronology. Uh, if you know this chapter, and it's a pretty well-known chapter in the Bible, uh, you know that this does not go well. It results in immediate pregnancy, but not with the woman that was Abram's wife. Instead, with this servant woman that they apparently... What was unpleasant? Uh, where they apparently... It was my fault. Picked her up in Egypt. And in this moment... It's a crisis moment because they're trying to hang on to a promise that they received, well, four chapters ago. But your life and theirs have this in common. You cannot perceive chapter breaks. You don't know what four chapters ago looks like, do you? You don't know what God's plan looks like. You can look behind but you don't know where this is at on his timetable and according to his scale. And so Abram and Sarai are in the very similar position. They are hanging on to this promise. And they've been even doubtful at times or they've struggled at times in the Egyptian scene where Abram tries to protect his wife through human ingenuity. They've demonstrated great faith as Abram protected Lot and gave him whatever land he chose because he had so much trust in God keeping his promise. And they've even had this promise reaffirmed to them in just the last chapter, chapter 15. God promising that he will keep his word. But from their limited perspective, they see a crisis. Because they don't know where the fulfillment is. And what's so remarkable about this isn't just this kind of soap opera scene. The drama of, you know, this extramarital, or I guess it's like an open marriage is what they would call this today. Uh, this is, you know, permitted by his wife to uh, take this handmaiden uh, as a surrogate or whatever, and it's this it's this bad situation. I don't think that's what what's really notable about this moment. It's gonna be it's gonna turn ugly. It's gonna be bad. It's not gonna go well for them. But the human solution is is what's being featured here. Sarah decides to intervene. She decides to hurry things up with something that was a common practice in. Uh, the ancient Near East. It was normative that if a married couple could not have a child, then it was widely permitted, according to uh, Dr. Kitchen's book, The Reliability of the Old Testament, that uh, in, in those cultures, they would take on uh, another wife in order to bear the child, usually a servant, and she would bear the child, and then the, you were actually... That was normal to dismiss her and keep the baby. Obviously a, a, a cruel practice, but something that was culturally normative in the ancient world. Well, just because something's culturally acceptable doesn't make it right. And so Sarai adopts the practice of the peoples around her, culturally acceptable, but lacking in faith. And again, what's Remarkable to me about this 
section is the way that the scripture inspired by God positions this. It positions it so sympathetically in such human language. It's reminding us of things that we don't necessarily need to be reminded about. Verse 3 says, And after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, the emphasis on how long this has been since the promise is giving us some sympathy for these characters. Have you ever waited ten years for something? I mean, a decade of waiting, a decade of praying, a decade of unfulfilled expectations. That's what's presented to us here. And then verse 3 says, also, in a seemingly unnecessary way, uh, or, or actually look at, look at verse 1. It just says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Well, we know that. That's the one thing we certainly have clear from this story. It's still Abram and Sarai in the tent. Nobody else. No baby, no fulfilled promise, just this hope and just some faith. And so Sarah wants to hurry things up. The sympathetic presentation of this thing is so interesting to me because the Bible seems to actually understand that we struggle with God's timetable. The fact that it emphasizes that it's been 10 years, there's still no child, shows to us that God gets that we are not him. That we have this kind of hurry up attitude. We have this impatience that's built in us, this short-sightedness that doesn't let us see what's beyond the seen to the unseen. And when we stop operating in faith, it becomes very, very difficult to us to trust. And so I, I like that this is presented to us in a way that is sympathetic. It doesn't make it right. It makes it common. It doesn't excuse this choice. That was a sinful choice and a choice lacking faith. Instead, it reminds us that life is like this. There may be a time in your life where you pray for something, the salvation of a wayward child someday, or the singleness just keeps going on way longer than you had planned out kind of in your mind, or a sickness overtakes you and steals so much of your energy And you ask God and you ask God to save that kid and to bring that someone into your life and to relieve you from your suffering. And he doesn't answer that prayer. And not a week goes by that you don't ask him. Not a day goes by that you don't feel the pressure of this thing. And we all want burden relieved. And so put yourself in the tent of Abram and Sarai. And rather than just sitting back and reading a Bible story like, this is right, this is wrong, this verse shows right, this verse shows wrong. Wake up and recognize that we're the same way. That we need to exercise faith in times of chronological crisis. That God's timetable is so much different than ours 
And there's so many examples of this in the scriptures from the cries of Psalms, asking for prayers to be answered, asking for justice to be carried out on uh, victims who have not seen uh, their their, uh, problems solved, on sufferers like Job. These instances throughout the scriptures that cause believers to sometimes cry out in faith and other times act in faithlessness are a common experience to us. And I think it can be at least instructive to us to know that we're not alone in our impatience, that God understands. And I think there's a reason he tells us this story this way, so that we might not lose hope. So first off, there's a crisis of chronology that's presented to us. I read a line somewhere about a man in church history. This is a Vegas story you've ever heard. Vegas, awesome word. The most vagary. So he was not a believer, but someone gave him a Bible. And as God started to open his mind and his eyes, his spirit to receive spiritual truth, one of the first things he said upon reading the Bible is, this book understands me. This book understands me. I think that's one of the reasons God inspired scripture. It's very, it's very odd when that happens. I think it's my fault. I'm going to change something, okay? I'm going to put this here and see if that does something, okay? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, what was I saying? Oh, this book understands me, right? So I think that's one of the reasons that God's spirit inspired the scriptures through human authors. There's just this sympathy to this story. You feel their trouble. I mean, it has been 10 years. <clears throat> Consider how long that is. Think about that waiting period. That, that day that Abram received that promise in chapter 12, he, he was no spring chicken. 12, 4, chapter 12, verse 4 says he was 75 years old. So now, how old is Abram? <laughs> Math majors, talk to me. Yeah. Uh, 85. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you may graduate from this fine institution. <laughs> Let's talk after. Uh, <laughs> I just love the sympathy of this, of this text. And I think that you should be aware that God understands that waiting is hard. Second, I'd like you to notice that sin is never a solution. Verses 4 through 6. So the crisis of chronology, the sympathy of the whole thing in verses 1 through 3. But now look at sin is never a solution In verses 4 through 6, it says, And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, 
I was despised in her sight. May Yahweh judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarah treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now, what do we see happening in this section? Well, we see turmoil of all kinds. We see all sorts of trouble. Verse 4 has a word in it, a Semitic word that is familiar in, in multiple languages in the ancient world that's lived over today, uh, and it is this word Hamas. It means violence or trouble. And that's what this situation is bringing into their lives. Their marriage, though, under the stress of childlessness, of barrenness, is now under even more stress and even more difficulty because they've introduced something that was against God's original plan. Remember, this is the book of Genesis. This is the book where you're instructed in chapter 2 what marriage is intended to be from God. Marriage is intended to be a gift from God for human happiness and holiness where a man and a woman come together in a covenant to meet one another's needs in this mutually amazing way that God created. It was not intended to be polygamous. It was not intended to be anything other than the original blueprint for marriage that God displays in the beginning of this book, chapter 2, verse 24. There is one too many people in this marriage right now. And so it's interesting that Sarai is quite surprised that it turned out this way, that that incident has added stress to their relationship. And it's a good reminder that when we decide to intervene, and usually that's a result of short-sightedness, of sinfulness, of impatience, things can go very badly for us because sin is never a solution. I think there's an intentional play on words as this literary flow goes from the early chapters of Genesis to here. If you look at verse 3, it says, Abram's wife Sarah took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to husband Abraham, Abram and his wife. Took and gave. Do you recognize those words from somewhere else in Genesis? She took the fruit that was pleasing in her eyes and she gave it to her husband. This is a second occurrence of the fall. It's a reduplication. It's a cheap imitation. It's sin has come into the world, and now that sin has come into the world, sin keeps coming into the world, into relationships, into marriages, into families, into society, and it messes stuff up because sin is never a solution. The Hamas of this passage, the the violence, the outrage, the wrong done that Sarah identifies because suddenly... Sarah, who hasn't been able to be pregnant for however long they've been married. What are we talking about? Six decades or something like that. And then one bad idea evening with Hagar and suddenly she's pregnant. I mean, this is what she wanted to happen. But something about the smile on her face or the the child in her womb or whatever it was 
set Sarai off. And now she perceives this Egyptian servant as an enemy. And she really is the victim in this story. She didn't have any, I doubt, say in this matter. And I'm reading into the text a little bit here. But this text certainly portrays her as a victim of this sinful decision. Sarai is portrayed like Eve of old. She took and gave. And instead of hope and faith, this sinful intervention, this idea that we could short-circuit this thing. And this happens all the time, friends. GOC, this happens all the time. How many people do you know that have insisted that it makes no sense to wait for God's way? Whether that's in marriage or whether that's in integrity issues in school. I mean, you have seen people due to a lack of patience who mess up their whole lives because they think they have a better way than God does. But that's, that's an ordinary example in relationships that are marked by sexual immorality. Folks don't want to wait, and so they say, we have a better way. We love each other. It's fine. This is how we'll do it. Get to know each other better this way. Save money this way. Roommate this way. Shack them up, friends. You know the story. It's all over our culture. What is that? That's a, a sinful choice that short circuits God's intended plan. Hallelujah. I'm just glad it wasn't me making that sound. What was I saying? <laughs> Tell you a story. Uh, this is just a silly story of veggie tales. But this has happened to me before. Uh, this this human intervention idea. Not, not this not this one exactly, not this exact story. Uh, but a similar story. I was at Huntington Botanical Gardens and Library with my family. We like it there. We live off the 210, so we just cruise over there with some regularity to stroll the gardens uh, like Nebuchadnezzar of old. And uh, it's a cool place, and lots to see, and it's, it's just, it's beautiful. So we're walking through the garden with a, a friend, so our family, and I think a friend, there's seven of us, and we're walking through the rose garden there. And we get to kind of an intersection in cobblestone, uh, roses on all sides, and there's a, a pack of people with their just kind of smiling with their phones out, and there's two people, a guy and a girl, kind of in the front of them, and we, we reach the intersection at the same time, the walking path. And it's one of those, you go ahead, no, you go ahead, no, you go ahead. And I, I mean, we have four kids, and they, you know, they're just trying to be polite. And so I'm staying, kind of keeping my group back, and this group has lots of phones and they're acting weird and I don't understand why we're not just passing each other here, but we're kind of held up and they're insisting on standing in the middle of this little walkway intersection thing. And we exchange pleasantries like, excuse me, go ahead. No, excuse me, go ahead. No, excuse me, go ahead. But then all the friends are like filming this. And so 
I just don't understand what's happening. And because I have the gift of leadership, I, I decide to kind of speak on behalf of the group. Merrily, meanwhile, was like pulling on my arm to because she saw things I didn't see. And I realized something. Like the friends are taking pictures and I go, oh, oh. And I start to back the group off a little bit. I said, did you guys just get engaged? Because clearly, like, that's what happened here. And the guy looks at me and says, no. <laughs> but we're about to. And gets down on me and proposes to this girl at that very moment. <laughs> All people in my group are mortified. <laughs> Especially Marilyn. And so now she's not pulling my arm. She's like dragging us all back. And I'm like, because <laughs> we're in a very intimate moment here. I thought I was helping. I messed up that guy's proposal. And we shrinked away. Again, I thought I was helping. <laughs> Did you guys just get engaged? No. <laughs> but we're about to. <laughs> oh. <laughs> One of the worst moments ever. <laughs> because I thought I was helping. And Sarah did the same thing I level. She thought she was helping. She thought like this this will hurry things along for God's plan. This will this will move things forward. This will this will clear the way for God's promise. She must have thought maybe God's promises for Abraham, uh, my husband, and not for me. But she lacked faith. And sin is never a solution. Colossians 3, 5 says we have to mortify sinful desires. And sometimes that's the desire to have things done on our timetable, in our schedule, to our preferences, rather than trusting for God's way to unfold in God's time. Uh, a final observation from this passage in verses 7 through 16. Uh, we saw the crisis of chronology and the sympathy I think the author presents here showing us that it is hard to wait. We see that sin is never a solution, and there's more of that as this story unfolds, but I don't want to spoil it for you. Lots happens because of this child. But the main emphasis of chapter 16 is here, and I'd like you to write this line down, uh, verses 7 through 16, his mercy is more. So there was a promise, there was impatience, And now there's been sin, but the text focuses on the extraordinary mercy of God. And that's worth meditating on. Look at verse 7. Now the angel of Yahweh found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. Now Shur is a place that's located, well, you can't be sure. Dad jokes, what's up? Okay, back back to the text. By the spring of the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, 
I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. And then the angel of Yahweh said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of Yahweh said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they shall be too many to count. And the angel of Yahweh said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because Yahweh has given heed to your affliction, and he will be a wild donkey of a man. (laughs) His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all his brothers. And then she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her, Thou art a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Ir Lahai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So in this little story, which lasts a year, he's 85, remember a good math, at the beginning of the chapter, he's 86 now, takes 10 months to cook a baby, um, 40 weeks, do the math, they always say nine months, it's a lot. So what do we see in this chapter? There's a lot going on there, right? First off, that angel of Yahweh mentioned repeatedly with that same title, at first seems to be an angelic messenger. But the more that this messenger speaks, the more we start to recognize that this is apparently a theonomy, an appearance of God in human form, some kind of moment. These happen throughout the Old Testament infrequently, but still enough that it's noteworthy that God decides to personally make an appearance. That's why the angel says, I, in the first person, will multiply your descendants. It's why the angel speaks as God's voice in verse 11 and 12, and it's why she responds in awestruck worship in verse 13. So please notice in this section that we're hearing from God himself four times called the angel of Yahweh. This theophany is is appearing. And all of it is to communicate God's mercy to this woman. He calls her by name. I want you to know how unusual this is. In verse 8, when this this divine voice says, Hagar, Sarah's maid. The fact that God speaks her name, according to a well-known Old Testament scholar, Bruce Waltke, this is the only time, not just in the Uh, This is the only time in ancient Near Eastern literature where a deity calls a woman by her name. That's fascinating. That's a big deal. The fact that God calls her out, that he goes to her in this personal appearance and ministers to her and has, though his plan featured in chapter 12 and chapter 15 and not to be fulfilled for several more chapters, his plan seems to have this this linear line to it. God has another plan for this woman and her son. 
And that is a demonstration of God's mercy. She could have died in the wilderness. She was apparently on her way back to Egypt. This is not safe travels, but God intervenes. All of it is an act of mercy. His ministering to her, his enfolding his plan to her, and even his call in verse 9 for her to return to her scene of difficulty, of affliction. You see, when God ministers to you mercifully, it doesn't mean that all your problems go away. Sometimes you go right back into a situation of great difficulty. That's what happens to Hagar. All of it an act of God's mercy, calling her by her name, telling her an unfolding plan that that God has for her people to be multiplied greatly. Not the original plan that God gave to Abram and Sarai, but another plan that God has that he's unfolding, but he tells her to go back into her affliction. He doesn't give her automatic relief, but he gives her mercy in comfort. Verse 11 Part B, when he says, the angel of Yahweh said to her further, Behold, you are with child, you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because Yahweh has given heed to your affliction. The fact that God ministers to her, that he meets her with mercy to comfort her in affliction, that he hears her, is such a beautiful expression of God intervening in a situation that he could have very well neglected. And I want you to think about God this way. I want you to think about God in the way that Hagar does, because she says in verse 13, thou art a God who sees. Here God is pictured as seeing and hearing. And when you are in a place of great confusion, in a place where your patience is wearing thin, in a place where you're crying out in Psalm 13 language, how long, O Lord, I want you to know that you're talking to a God who sees you and who hears you. He is not absent. He is not indifferent. His eyes are on the afflicted, and he is not far off. I'd also like you to notice that This is right on the tail of a sinful situation. And here's the wonderful thing about God's mercy and God's grace. Sin, even stupid sin, like the sin that just happened with Abram and Hagar. Stupid sin cannot get rid of or cancel out God's grace. That's why it's called grace. It always operates in a situation that is undeserving. That's the nature of grace. Otherwise, God would be giving you what you deserve, which is judgment and wrath. And so in this sweet moment where God ministers to this woman, he doesn't bring judgment on her. He sees how hopeless she is. He sees how afflicted she is, and he wants to minister to her. It's a profound comfort to see in Scripture how God's compassion is extended in the face of impatience. And for now, we just see it in in Hagar's life, in this extraordinary gift of 
of a people, a people who will cause a good amount of trouble. Suffice it to say, he is a wild donkey of a man, which is, you're not allowed to call your roommate that. So, as we think about God and time, God's timetable, and mercy being manifest even in a story like this, I'd like you to, you could either turn there or just jot this verse down, 2 Peter 3. Second Peter 3. Peter says that the Lord is, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. As some count slowness. So let's say that you are not struggling with with this right now. That means that you're not in the some group. But I'm telling you that someday you will be part of the some. You will feel like God is taking forever. You will have urgency and it appears that he does not. And it will be painful and it will be difficult because we wear watches and have iPhones that tell us every minute that passes by. But God, 2 Peter 3, 8, is the one who measures a day as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. He thinks in terms of millennia, we think in terms of hours of suffering. And so he appears to be slow to us. But I want you to know that even when he appears slow, he will appear merciful because he is not slow as some count slowness. How? He's not slow in 2 Peter 3, 9, fulfilling his promise. And Abram and Sarah were the ultimate example of this, that even in their impatience And in their chronological intervention, even in this sinful moment, as they try to fix the plan of God, but instead botch their lives uh, to some degree, they find out, as this story unfolds, what Paul says to the Romans in chapter 4. No unbelief, Romans 4, 20 and 21, no unbelief made Abram waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You understand there's still 17 years to go. 17 years will elapse in the next few chapters. And God will hold his promise. And Abram will learn to live by faith and know that the promises of God are inviolable. To know that the God who sees and hears will fulfill all his good words, helps us when we think that God is running late. Because in fact, he is not slow in keeping his promises. He always fulfills them exactly on time. Not your time, but his time. Father, thank you for your word and how rich it is to us to see in a story from so many thousands of years ago, that you still operate according to your perfect plan, not according to our folly, but according to your your good word, to your promise. 
So God, I ask that you would help this truth to rub into our eyes tonight. That you'd help us to see through this lens of your timetable. That our desire to intervene sinfully would not be stopped short. That you would remind us that you see us, that you hear us. That you're going to fulfill all your good word. Help us to trust in promises unrealized. The return of Christ. Hope of glory in us. So much of our salvation that we have yet to experience fully, God. So help us, Father, to patiently wait. To trust and to hope. And to look to your mercy. Thank you that you hear us. And that you see us. And that you can handle a prayer that says, how long? Oh, Lord, we know that you have a timetable. Help us to trust it in Jesus' name. Amen.